We've got a very unusual cast of characters on this episode of This Week in the CLE Today. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with my colleague, Laura Johnston, and my colleagues, Michael Norman, and politics, chief politics writer, Seth Richardson. Leila Tassi and Lisa Garvin are off today, so we've got lots of interesting topics to talk about that we might not normally talk about. Let us begin. Is the Ohio Republican Party really challenging a Democratic Ohio Supreme Court justice on the gerrymandering case while Pat DeWine continues to resist the overwhelming pressure to get off the case where his father is a key player? Seth Richardson, we've been looking for a precedent for what happens if a judge rules on a case with his father. We can't find one. This is unprecedented. No one's ever done it. And yet the Republicans are saying Jennifer Bruner's the one that needs to get off the case what are they thinking? Well, I think it's a pretty clear example of uh, uh, some deliberate obfuscation of sorts, right? Because of the pressure that uh, has been on Pat DeWine to recuse himself. And, uh, you know, really just like it, it it hasn't been a good look for the Republican Party. So, uh, you know, what is what is the way to do that? You, you don't necessarily defend Pat DeWine's decision. You kind of muddy the argument, right? And say that Jennifer Bruner, a Democrat who has commented on uh, redistricting should recuse herself and has, you know, and, and does have relationships. But it, it's sort of an odd argument in a way because, I mean, it's a very odd argument in a way, right? Because if, you know, let, let's take their argument at face value for just a second, right? And say, okay, if Jennifer Bruner should recuse herself, then there really is no argument that Pat DeWine shouldn't recuse himself also. So but what they're trying to say is the reason she should recuse herself is she attended a fundraising event with the guy who's running the, the, the nation's efforts to have honest redistricting. And several people when she was running for Supreme Court said, hey, she'd be a good justice if the gerrymandering comes up. There is no way. That's an equivalent to what Pat DeWine is doing. It's actually not a reason for her to recuse herself, which is why she came right out and said it. This is totally bogus. Throw in the flag. The Republicans are way out of line trying to obfuscate that Pat DeWine is violating judicial ethics that could not be more clear. I, I was I was I guess. I shouldn't be surprised because the it's like the children's games down in Columbus these days. But anybody that looks at this should know this is a preposterous move by the Republicans and that Pat DeWine is so far out of line, he could lose his law license when this is over. Well, again, I think that I don't know that the point is necessarily to get Jennifer Bruner to recuse herself. It's to sort of muddy the uh, the, the argument for Pat DeWine. Right. And if you. Uh, you know, if you kind of point to, you know, if they have something else to point to instead of actually discussing Pat DeWine's issues, um, then they can, you know, it, it just it's sort of a way of uh, um, making like an ad hoc argument. Of All right, but, are, but are Ohioans that stupid? I mean, are, are people really going to look at this and say, huh, yeah, I get, you know, that's the same thing. Jennifer Bruner is doing what Pat DeWine is doing. Or are they smart enough to see through a complete smokescreen and say, this is hocus pocus. Pat DeWine needs to get off the case and let's move forward. Can, I, can think, I, I think if you go ahead. I was go ahead, just going to jump in. I, I mean, you just look to precedent, like to past elections where conversations were about emails and servers. And you can make a conversation about whatever you want if you have people who already want to believe you and the brazenness of this. When I saw this story come across, I mean, I'm constantly stunned 
by what goes on in Columbus and what they think they can get away with. And then a lot of times they do. Well, what bothered me, too, is the news coverage was largely giving it the false equivalency that yeah. that the, the people are looking at this like it's a straight thing without putting they're the, the reporting facts without truth. Right. Because the truth is mm -hmm. Pat DeWine is completely out of line. He cannot do what he's doing. It's never been done. And Jennifer Bruner isn't doing anything anywhere in that league. She's not doing anything that requires her to recuse herself. But because the Republicans say it, everybody just says, oh, the Republicans say she needs to get off. And here's why, blah, blah, blah. And she says she's not going, which is bogus. It's not true. What they're saying is complete, complete horse hockey. There's no reason for her <laughs> to get off this case. And yet, the, the, you know, I guess they got what they wanted, Seth. Right. Everybody did a story. <gasps> Jennifer Bruner needs to get off the case. And that was I, it. I, where are the voters going to use their their powers of of you know, reality to, to see through this kind of nonsense. Anyway, I, th this doesn't help. I mean, Pat DeWine is way out of line. I, he, I, I just can't see him persisting on this throughout the case because it will cause him real problems with his law license Can and I he's have, running next year. I, I totally agree. I just wonder if the idea of redistricting is so hard for people to grasp and it's a it's a difficult concept we've got three lawsuits going on here i just wonder if it's out of the realm that most people are just like yeah, i just i that. can't follow it and and so you're not seeing the outrage because they but, literally just can't but, can't fathom all of these machinations but laura everybody knows a judge cannot sit on a case with their dad i mean okay, that, that's, that's like that does make it much like, simpler yeah sure as it gets, right you can't yeah, that, do that Chris, I think that's true, but, um, you know, do people also know that a judge, you know, can or can't sit on a case where maybe they have donors who have skin in the game? So that that is where the the argument, the the, the muddying the argument comes in, and that that's kind of very clearly right. the point of this. Right. Okay. So play play muddy, play, you know, try and put mud up there, but it doesn't change the fact that what Pat DeWine is doing could not be more wrong. And again, we wonder why he's doing it, and it gets back to where they're just drunk with power down there and think they can do anything they want. It's this week in the CLE. We've had turnover among leaders of Case Western Reserve University, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, and more. Laura Johnston, who is the latest Cleveland leader who is heading out the door? This is Tri-C President Alex Johnson. He will retire as president of Cuyahoga Community College in June 2022. That is nearly a decade in the role. When I saw this roll across, I was thinking, how long he'd been on. And yeah, almost a, a full decade, he became the college's fourth full president in July 2013. During this time, he's increased graduation rates, reorganized programs like nursing, creative arts, and information technology, and hugely dealt with COVID at the college, which now has about half of its classes online, which probably makes it a lot easy, easier for people to attend, honestly. But um, this wasn't mentioned in Cameron Field's story, but I also believe they got a mascot in that time. They're the Triceratops now. So there's more of a college identity as well. The thing about Alex Johnson is he's one of those leaders in Cleveland who everybody respects. Mm -hmm. there, there, there have been leaders where they have respect, but, you know, when people are whispering to each other, they say, yeah, but, you know, the guy's a problem. Nobody says that about Alex Johnson. He's He's done great service for the time he's been there. You know, he suffered through the the unexpected death of his wife a few years back, which which was devastating and people thought he might leave, but he but he stayed and he continued to do the job. He did lead them through the the pandemic and uh, it's going to be tough to replace him. I mean, they've had some great leaders at that school 
and replacing him will be a challenge because yeah. of how how towering a figure he has been. Absolutely. They are doing a national search to find the next president. Obviously, he's giving them lots of time, but he had a 40-year career in higher education. He was actually the president of the Metropolitan Campus for Tri-C for 10 years. He spent time in Pittsburgh and New Orleans. He's written two books about leadership. And, you know, they keep bringing in those really cool speakers, too, for their, their Tri-C scholarship uh, banquet every year. So, yeah, he's had a high profile, and it will be a, a tough role to fill. Yeah, we, we wish him well. He's still around for a while, but but we do wish him well as he heads off. He's got a great record to be proud of. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As all the wackiness going on with Republican legislators finally persuaded Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup to give up on finding a compromise on a bill to regulate vaccine mandates in Ohio. Seth Richardson, Cup came flying out a couple of weeks ago with what he said would be the replacement bill. He was fast-tracking it. They were going to vote on it that day. And then the cacophony began. Yeah, it, it does seem for the time being that any kind of vaccine mandate or anti-mandate bill is pretty much dead uh, just because <laughs> we, we've seen what's happened over the past, you know, eight, ten months, right, with all of these bills. You, you know, the infamous uh, uh, testimony from the uh, physician saying, uh, you know, the, the vaccine magnetizes you or people saying that you can, you know, link up with 5G or whatever the you know crazy I hesitate to even call them conspiracy theories. They're just kind of wacky. Um, and I mean, this was, you know, a way to, that they were trying to, you know, kind of mediate some of uh, uh, some of the anti-vaccine sentiment and, you know, some of the uh, business sentiment. But the, the business community never really got on. And I, I think that uh, Cup just kind of looked at it and said, you know what, we've we've spent far too much time on this. We're moving on. It's fascinating that Bob Cup can't cut through the noise either. <laughs> yeah. We're all dealing with this just back and forth. And he finally just gave up, which probably is the, the best way to go and, and just leave it in the hands of businesses to decide what they're going to do. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're weeks away from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions in Cleveland, and we still don't know who the presenters will be, but some information has been released about what to expect during induction week. Mike Norman, welcome to the podcast. I think this is your first appearance. What do we know? Well, what we know is that um, it looks like Carol King will be coming to the induction ceremony on October 30th. It looks like the Go-Go's will be there. And it looks like uh, Foo Fighters and LL Cool J will be there. As for the other inductees, we don't know or they are deceased. So it's a bit uncertain as to what kind of show we're going to actually see uh, at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, which is the first time the induction in Cleveland has been held at such a big venue. We're hearing rumors that it's going to be an amazing announcement maybe Monday about who the presenters are going to be and that all will be well, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that uh, the celebration begins on October 24th uh, down at the Rock Hall for what the Rock Hall is calling Celebration Day. And so they're going to have live music, local bands, uh, fireworks, a big celebration down there on the plaza, uh, the inductee exhibit. Uh, the 2021 inductee exhibit will open that day. Uh, Troy Smith, who covers the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for us, just had a story on that yesterday. There's yeah, although I do want to point out, it says it's the red dress that Tina Turner wore in the video for Private Dancer. I went and looked. She wears that dress in the video for about a second and a half. 
She does. Uh, she That's fair. Uh, she did take that dress and wear it on the road on that very, very legendary private dancer tour. But technically, it's still the dress that she, one of the dresses she wore there. I think people will be more excited to see uh, this big painting of Jay-Z done by an artist named Jaron Jerk Beasley called The Tree of Life, which is this giant 72 inch by 96 inch oil portrait of the rapper Jay-Z. That's very similar in feel to the portraits of uh, President Obama and the first lady that were done as his official portraits. It's kind of in that that modernist style. Uh, so that'll be cool to see. And I All right, think let me let me stop you there because you told me a story yesterday about the only other painting to be <laughs> to be put there. And you just got to tell people this is a great story. What was the first painting to be featured in the Rock Hall? Yeah. So Little Richard, legend of rock and roll, one of the uh, very first inductees of the rock and roll, also had a very high opinion of himself and had a a, a sort of um, 60s day glowish painting commissioned uh, of himself that he just adored. And he donated it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame said, thank you very much. And they were going to put it in their archives. But then Little Richard wanted to see it on the wall. So it was so bad that the Rock Hall decided they were only going to put it on the wall whenever Little Richard visited the museum. So they had an actual spot in the main in, uh, uh exhibition hall downstairs, which was the Little Richard spot that they had routinely had some other exhibit there. But whenever Little Richard came into town, which in the 90s was fairly frequently, they, they would put the, the bad painting back up and he would be happy. You may be the only person that knows this because of your institutional knowledge of the Rock Hall. Cool story. Only the second time we're seeing a painting. Anything else that uh, pops out at you from what we know so far? Well, I think the big thing we need to remember is, look, you know, the, the, the 2020 inductions did not happen in Cleveland because obviously the pandemic. So they went virtual. But remember, those inductions were supposed to be, uh, you know, the big move to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. They were supposed to be broadcast live on HBO, not the the delayed broadcast that's going to take place this this year. And uh, Greg Harris, the head of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame here in Cleveland, was touting it as as a week long sort of South by Southwest style music festival in Cleveland with big acts playing at venues around town. That is not happening quite this year because COVID's still around and it's still difficult to arrange all of the pieces that need to go into this. But if they score a big a big uh, score with the presenters. Uh, being major names, I think you might see talk coming back that, uh, you know, can we have this every year in Cleveland? Is it sustainable? Is, you know, is Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse going to work out? We need to see if that's going to happen. But it could be an interesting few months after the inductions, depending on what goes down as to uh, as to the future of the ceremony in Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, we all know what the rumors are, and, and it's rock royalty that is coming to Cleveland to, when they announce it. People are going to be impressed, and those leftover 1,400 tickets that haven't sold will immediately sell out. Uh, we'll be talking about this again next week after they make their announcement. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Should we be encouraged or discouraged that only 6% of the people in Cleveland have opted into the city's new recycling program? Laura Johnston, there's pluses, but there's a lot of minuses. 
Yeah, it, it's not as bad as it seems. It's not like they're like, whoa, 6%, we can't do this. These are 6% of residents who really want to be there. That's 9,300 households with 10 more days to sign up for the Cleveland program. And while that's not a lot, it should be enough for Cleveland to start recycling again as early as November and build a sustainable program for the future. The key is the people who want to recycle, they're really going to work to get it right. So they, the recycling doesn't get contaminated with trash. This program is also going to come with an education and enforcement component similar to a cart tagging program that we talked about a while back on the podcast in Brooklyn, where there are notes saying, whoops. This doesn't belong here so that people are getting it right and it's not so expensive to recycle. The city's not going to make money on recycling. That's probably a done thing forever, maybe. But it's not going to be as expensive as when they were trying to make the entire city recycle. You, you do still have the economy of scale, though. If 6% of these people are scattered all over the city, the recycling truck is going to be driving all over the city to get the recycling stuff, but only making limited stops. It's not like a trash truck that stops at every house. They're going to have to have a map in their in their cab to make sure they get to the people that are that are doing it. No, that's a good point. And, and hopefully they'll figure out a way that they can be efficient at that. They're actually going to go twice a week to get the recycling, which seems like a lot. Um, and then they're going to pick up those recyclables from the curb, deliver them to the Ridge Road Transfer Station, and then take it to the recycling, the sorting facility. Apparently, a lot of people have been using those blue bins just as extra trash cans. So the people who are doing that and not participating, they're going to have their blue bin taken away. Oh, wow. That's interesting. They're probably going to think somebody stole it. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we finally have an issue which some of the Republicans seeking the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate do not stand with Donald Trump? Seth Richardson, this is hard to believe. Yeah, in a way, it's uh, yeah, very hard to believe. Um, so, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Republican, uh, the Senate minority leader right now, uh, you know, he and Donald Trump have been on the outs for quite some time, really, you know, uh, really kind of throughout Trump's presidency. They were a little bit at odds. But uh, after, you know, Trump encouraged the uh, January 6th riot, that's when it really started to break down. And since then, the, you know, Trump has been calling for his removal and his ouster and saying, you know, unless you know, don't don't vote unless there's a change in leadership those kinds of things. Um, and in, in very surprising fashion, um, you know, Josh Mandel and Jane Timken, both Republicans running for office, uh, you know, have both really sidestepped the question over whether they want to remove Mitch McConnell if they get to office. Um, whereas you have um, J.D. Vance basically saying, yeah, we should get rid of, you know, McConnell and Mike Gibbons in the past has, you know, been critical of McConnell, but was a little less critical when asked this time around. It's it's really kind of the first um, uh, example of sort of daylight between these candidates we've seen. Well, what's interesting about Jane Timken is she completely reversed herself on Congressman Gonzalez, right? I mean, she came out, supported what he did. And then when Trump got mad at her, she completely reversed and attacked him. I mean, these are people that have basically sold their integrity to get the benediction of Donald Trump. So it's, it's kind of shocking that on this issue, they're not in lockstep with him. 
and it just makes me wonder what's going on with this race. Are they, are they, are you starting to see some frustration by these candidates that they all have the identical position and that this has just been a contest to see who can be more outrageous in their statements than the other? Or are we starting to see a different approach to trying to get this nomination? Are they worried about Matt Dolan, who is the one candidate that's saying, I'm not doing this for Donald Trump. I'm my own person. I stand apart. I think it's actually a little simpler than that, where you had a lot of these candidates who thought they could come out, you know, just come out in the race and uh, they were going to get the Trump endorsement and that was going to be their golden ticket. They were just going to walk to this, you know, nomination by getting Trump to get on board with them. It's pretty clear by now that Trump probably isn't going to endorse in this race, at least for the time being. I mean, if there's like a very clear cut winner, then yeah, he'll probably come in and uh, you know, support whoever it is and kind of take credit for it. Um, but but if it's competitive, it doesn't look like he's getting in. Whereas, you know, Mitch McConnell has something that is maybe even more tangible um, as far as its value to some of these candidates, and that's money. He controls PAC money, and he can come in and really make or break a candidacy. And if you look at the candidates who, you know, don't you know, haven't necessarily wanted to criticize him and Josh Mandel and Jane Timken, um, they are probably going to have to be much more reliant on Mitch McConnell's packs and the like. You look at J.D. Vance, who has, you know, been critical of McConnell, and he really does have to take a kind of further tack than uh, some of the other candidates just to sort of, you know, quote unquote, prove that his uh, his his past, you know, um, I believe, you know, just his constant criticism of Trump in the past um, is just that. It's the past. And the other thing to note about J.D. Vance is he's got millions of dollars from the legs of Rebecca Mercer and um, Peter Thiel that he can rely on. He doesn't necessarily right. need to rely on that Mitch McConnell money. Uh, the same with Mike Gibbons, who's independently wealthy. He can kind of, you know, go as he pleases, um, which is, you know, probably why he's, you know, just hasn't really gone one way or another. He can just kind of do what he wants. Yeah, he can do what he wants, but no one knows who he is. I don't know what he's doing in the race. Do we hear from Bernie Moreno? Uh, we have not yet. He uh, he didn't respond to Andrew Tobias's uh, questions yet. Um, I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does too, because again, independently wealthy guy can kind of do as he pleases and uh, um, has really tried to look to separate himself um you know hasn't hasn't seemed too successful in that uh, endeavor just yet but all right so for josh mandel and jane timpkin the we now know what the dividing line is between them and trump it's the whole the cash if it comes down to trump versus cash they'll take the cash you're listening to this week in the cle we got a behind the scenes Look at the return after more than 18 months of the Cleveland Orchestra to Severance Hall Music Center, or whatever we're calling it now. What did we see, Mike Norman, and what is ahead for Cleveland's renowned cultural institution? Uh, one of our arts reporters, Ann Nikoloff, was there for the rehearsals yesterday um, for to, um, today's, tonight's show, which is the orchestra's return to Severance for the first time for a live performance since March of 2020. Uh, they're going to perform a program called New Beginnings with works by Richard Strauss and others. Um, and what's interesting about this is that the last time the orchestra performed at Severance, it was just Severance Hall. Uh, this time they'll be performing in Severance Music Center, which sounds suspiciously like a nearby mall to me, but that's just me. Uh, and the concert hall is now dubbed the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Concert Hall. And that's because the Mandel Foundation gave a $50 million gift to the orchestra very recently, which is a pretty transformational gift when you think about it. And in honor of that, the orchestra decided to change the name of its uh, actual performance space to the Mandel Hall. Um, so that's so interesting. 
So, but what was cool yesterday, uh, you can see it in the picture. I think it's on the front page of the Plain Dealer even, uh, is all those people in the orchestra practicing like in jeans. Yeah. You know, it's just not something you ever see at Severance Hall or Music Center or Town Center or whatever it is. Um, it was, it was neat. It was, I mean, we, I guess we haven't been invited in for this kind of practice before, but they're trying to get the word out that we're back and come see yeah. us. They got to sell some tickets to a, a population that is vulnerable to the coronavirus and may be hesitant to return. Well, and look, the, the orchestra has performed, uh, in front of live audiences this summer at Blossom Music Center. Uh, so they've, you know, they're accustomed to being there, but obviously Blossom is outside and, and that's a different sort of vibe. Uh, there's a lot of exciting things. I mean, they've announced an expansive schedule of shows at Severance for, for this fall, winter and spring. They're going to go back on tour again uh, sometime next year. Uh, one of the outgrowths of the pandemic, though, is they've really developed a very high-tech and just amazing streaming app called Adela that allows them to... Um, put on this in-focus digital concert series. And I've listened to several of these and they're just stunning uh, in, in their quality. Obviously, orchestra is amazing, but the, the, uh, the video and, and audio quality of these, if you put them through speakers, even on your computer and headphones, just, just amazing stuff. So I think people are going to be excited about that. And if you go to Severance, you're going to see uh, a lot of um, upgrades they did a big renovation recently. Uh, so pretty cool. Cleveland Orchestra what, is back. How do people get that app and what's it called again? It's called Adela, A-D-E-L-L-A. Uh, and you just go on to the Cleveland Orchestra website and uh, it's right there prominently on the homepage. The digital concert series is called In Focus. The cool thing about it is a large part of it is free. Certain programs are ticketed, um, but a lot of it is free. And uh, if you look on our website now, they just announced their upcoming season of digital concerts, too. One of our freelancers uh, did a piece on that. Very cool. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did reporter Mark Bona learn in speaking with Jordan Childs of the Gold Over America tour of female gymnasts, which is touring the country? Mike Norman, everybody always loves to see the gymnasts after the Olympics. What uh, what a mark here? Well, what's really cool this time is that Simone Biles is the headliner of this uh, of this tour, and it's not being done by USA Gymnastics. It's being done by the gymnasts themselves. Uh, many of the women who were on the U.S. Olympic team in Tokyo that took the silver medal. Uh, obviously, everything that went on with Simone Biles over there. Um, what what uh, what Mark heard from um, Jordan is that they want to to use this as a place to inspire young girls. Uh, she told him that, uh, you know, we we want to get a huge inspirational piece that people can take from them, not only about women empowerment, but also about the fact that no matter where you what you go through, the struggles, the aches, the pains, uh, that you're able to come together stronger. So there's that piece to it, too. It's being billed as kind of a gymnastics um, exhibition along with a with a rock concert. So it's, you know, it's not a competition per se, but more of a chance to just sort of revel in and enjoy the amazing athleticism of these of these women. 
Laura Johnston, are you going? <laughs> I'm going. I'm taking <laughs> I'm taking my eight-year-old daughter and going with my neighbor and, and her nine-year-old. So I, I read the story yesterday and I was super excited because we went a few years back. I can't remember the last time, but it was when the Indians made it to the World Series. So it's been a while. And it was really cool to see. But the idea that Simone Biles is going to be there and this empowerment piece of inspiration, I, I, I mean... I always liked gymnastics growing up. My daughter watched them over the Olympics, but I think this will be a really cool experience, and I'm glad they're coming to Cleveland. I bet for any regular listeners, there nobody who is surprised that you're going to that <laughs> with your daughter. <laughs> I think everybody would have bet on that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come back tomorrow, and we're going to be wrapping up another week of news. 